0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about constitutional crisis. Might be one of the most serious inappropriate conversations I've ever recorded. Some serious information and and kind of a topic today that I don't, I'm not being sarcastic and I don't think I'm using hyperbole to say that as a country we are facing the biggest constitutional crisis of my lifetime. But perhaps to lighten it up just a little bit, balance it out, I think I'll start with The Different Drummer because The Different Drummer has a connection back to the most recent Inappropriate Conversations show, looking at television debut, uh, my focus there made for TV movie. This ties back to a recording I've made before, Inappropriate Conversations 42, looking at made-for-TV films, and in some sense I'm going to repeat myself, but I want to make an effort to at least give a nod to the director of some groundbreaking American television, and it just happens to be a television program about a moment of uh, at least presidential, if not governmental, crisis in the form of a fiction film based on a novel by Fletcher (laughs) Neville. comes to film though my different drummer is not going to be the author of the story or even the screenplay i'm going to go to the director and this is the second time i've done it in this particular way looking at what might be considered to be a relatively unknown american film director and giving him a nod as a different drummer because of uh, made for tv movie the first time i did it was gerald friedman back in inappropriate Conversations 66 that was in august of 2011 and i was taking a look at uh, playing with kids and things I hand down to my kids, and uh, Scary Movies from the early 70s was part of a Gerald Friedman, one of the best directors of a made-for-TV film I've ever seen, and a movie called A Cold Night's Death. But I don't think that Friedman can claim the accolades that are probably due to Buzz Kulik. Now, in the realm of uh, filmmaking and even or just strictly directing for television, I'm not sure that Kulik stands out as a superstar. Does he belong under the list of directors I've mentioned in the past with the Cohen brothers and Louis Boonwell and others? Probably not. But he did make the first film shown in two parts on American broadcast television. This was coming back in like 1971, before what we would call the miniseries today. And when I think of the beginning of the television drama miniseries, I think of shows like QB7 or Rich Man Poor Man or Roots. And all of those came almost a full five years, maybe more, after the movie vanished. But before I get to the movie itself, which is going to tie into the concept of, you know, how do we deal with uh, presidential crises? How do we interpret these things today? Um, Being somewhat jaded in the aftermath of Watergate and uh, Iran-Contra and everything else that's happened since, not being able to see and identify a genuine constitutional crisis When it's facing us. But first, about Kulik. Using IMDB this time as the initial resource, because I think the bio there is better, it says this. After service in World War II, New York-born Buzz Kulik joined an advertising agency as a producer-director of TV commercials. After a few years, he left the agency and became a television director during the period known as the Golden Age of Television. Kulik directed many episodes of such highly respected anthology series as Playhouse 90... And you are there, in addition to such series as The Defenders and The Twilight Zone. This would be the classic period of The Twilight Zone, late 50s, early 60s. I think he did seven episodes, of which the one that I remember best is A Game of Pool, starring Jack Klugman, trying to uh, establish himself as the greatest pool player of all time and dealing with the consequences of legacy. Kulik began directing features in the early 1960s, but returned to television to become one of the most respected directors in the genre, known as the made-for-TV movie. One of his most notable efforts being the highly acclaimed *Brian's Song in 1971. And during the 1971-72 presidential campaign, Kulik was the television advisor to Democratic candidate Senator Edmund Muskie. So 1971 is where I want to focus, a crucial year in the career of Kulik, but also a crucial year in the history of made-for-TV movies. I'll name one, just to give you a sense of the magnitude of what was going on, late in 1971, the beginning of that 71-72 TV season. Vanished came out, that's the movie I want to talk about, uh, a two-parter, the first TV miniseries, for want of a better way of describing it. But the other one that came out in between there and Brian's song was Duel. Duel was... Uh, how most of us would have first encountered Steven Spielberg. He also did a, uh, one of the vignettes for the original Night Gallery pilot. But an actual end-to-end, here's your film, you make it, made-for-TV movie. Duel was the one. Dennis Weaver uh, doing battle with a menacing truck driver who, for whatever reason, wants to run him off the road. And so that November, in particular, made-for-television film, the ABC movie of the week, brought us Duel and also brought us Brian's Song. I watched Brian's song just a few days ago to prepare for this recording, and I'm tempted to say that it holds up. It definitely holds up from the standard of 1970s television, even mid to late 70s television. When you think that this was made in 71, it's really a fairly impressive production featuring star-making performances, for want of a better word, by James Kahn, Billy D. Williams, solid role by Jack Warner as the head coach, and enough actual Chicago Bears players and personnel to give it more of an authentic feel than a relatively low-budget film should. Uh, Made today, especially set in the modern NFL, this would be a cast of thousands, and it doesn't even feel like a cast of hundreds, but by focusing in on just four or five main characters really delivers the goods. And uh, sort of like the experiments that Roger Corman had done a decade or two before, how well can you accomplish great film artistry in a limited budget and with a short runtime available to you? There's no question in my mind that Kulik accomplished something incredibly important with Brian's Song. Now, I've got the advantage with Brian's Song in that I've seen it recently. I don't have that advantage with Vanished. I don't know that I've seen this film since the 1970s and probably originally saw it Uh, Not on its original broadcast debut, but a couple of years later. Maybe when Watergate was actually happening a couple of years later, in rerun. The times that I've mentioned it before, I've had very limited resources to work with. It's as if a blurb from a TV guide, or something along those lines, was the biggest and best plot summary I could find. And I'm glad I've waited until now to name Kulik as a different drummer, and give him credit for what he pulled together in The Movie Vanished. Because I found a really great website with a surprising title and a somewhat anonymous author to make a much better plot summary for me than anything I've done. It's called schatners2pay.blogspot.com And this was an article from July of 2009 uh, with the credit going to someone naming himself or herself as Footstep. But this website exists for interesting reason. It appears to be, in some cases, a tongue-in-cheek comic review of the various hairstyles over the years of William Shatner. In that context, though, it's come up with an incredibly accurate and interesting review of the 1971 made-for-TV movie Vanished because Shatner, toupee notwithstanding, appears as a reporter in the film. It's a big cast with a four-hour broadcast runtime, probably three hours of movie itself. But I'm going to let Footstep from Shatner'sTopay.bloggspot.com tell most of the story here, because it does give you a sense of cutting-edge television drama being, you know, something that we've lost a little bit along the way. I think it was better back in the 1970s than it is now. But then same can be said for network television news and investigative reporting as a whole. Here's the review. Vanished is a 1971 made-for-TV political thriller starring Richard Widmark as a fictional U.S. president, Paul Rodebush, and featuring a slew of supporting star character actors from that era, including Larry Hagman, Tom Bosley, E.G. Marshall, Murray Hamilton, Betty White, and of course, William Shatner, who gets to play relentless and intrepid reporter David Pollock. The movie, directed by Buzz Kulik, is adapted from a novel of the same name by Fletcher Nebel, who also wrote the political thriller later that turned into a classic movie, Seven Days in May. The complicated plot thus goes. A dead Chinese soldier mysteriously washes up on the northeast coast of the U.S. Meanwhile, the Rodebush administration, struggling in the polls, is gearing up for next November's presidential election. Presidential advisor and close friend Arnold Greer, played by Arthur Hiller, and Provisional, Waiting Presidential appointment, appointment, Press Secretary Gene Culligan, by James Ferentino, meet with a young scientist at the Greer household. The scientist has apparently discovered a top-secret CIA program, organized via a dummy foundation, to recruit nuclear scientists to spy on potential defectors and scope out what the other side scientists are, are really up to. Appalled at such bribery, the young scientist threatens to go to the press... Unless the program is stopped. Not long after, Greer's wife calls Culligan, concerned that her husband seems to have disappeared while out playing golf. Culligan and FBI agent Larry Storm, played by Robert Hooks, find Greer's abandoned car at the golf course. At the next day's press conference, Shatner's character, reporter Dave Pollock, demands answers as to what happened to Greer. The official line is that. The president has asked the FBI to investigate after two men were seen helping another man into a car in the area where Greer disappeared. Storm and Greer conduct an investigation of the disappearance, learning that Greer withdrew a substantial sum of money from his bank account before he went missing. Meanwhile, CIA head Arthur Ingram, played by E.G. Marshall, is concerned that Greer may have defected either to Red China or the Soviet Union. The president, in turn, chastises Ingram over the agency's secret foundation and orders the nuclear scientist funding program stopped. The politics of the disappearance are soon milked by the opposition party senator, Gannon, played by Robert Young. The story never mentions any specific political parties, but he's eager to help his presidential candidate as state governor in the upcoming elections things go from bad to worse as the investigation discovers from a landlady that Greer had been having secret weekly meetings with another man in a rented apartment. Could there be a potentially secretly scandalous homosexual relationship involved? The entire U.S. security establishment is soon on the case, including NSA boss Jerry Freytag, played by Larry Hagman. But the FBI head tells a group that he has been ordered by the president not to discuss the matter with other agencies. The president then emphatically orders the CIA off the case, something that further infuriates the head of the CIA. The president's curious refusal to publicly address his friend's potentially treasonous or scandalous disappearance soon turns into a political firestorm. Meanwhile, it turns out that Greer's mysterious acquaintance is one Dr. Lubin, also a nuclear scientist, and he has now gone missing too. Not long after that, another scientist also disappears. Not only that, but extensive contacts with Communist China are suspected. An angry CIA boss, disobeying the president's orders, decides to brief the mischievous Senator Gannon as to what he knows, all but guaranteeing a leak to the press. Meanwhile, the investigation continues to piece together the activities of the missing men who appear to have left the country. The investigation takes FBI agent Larry Storm to Rio, where Shatner's character also finds himself. Storm then settles on an apparent focal point for his investigation, a tiny South Atlantic island. All the while, pressure mounts on the president over his continuing silence on the Greer case. Even his press secretary has had enough, threatening to resign. Many, many more twists ensue, including Bill Shatner's character ending up on board the USS Enterprise. Well, the naval ship, that is. Seriously. So what's with all the disappearances? Why has the president blocked the CIA's investigation? What does President Rodebush know, and why won't he say? That's where we'll leave it, as we don't want to spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't seen Vanished. There is so much to applaud about this production that it's difficult to know where to begin. The attention to detail given to the unprecedented depictions of the quarters of U.S. power is just one example of the dedication and professional spirit that evidently infused this production. Many examples are shown on the website in photos of real Washington, D.C. location and authentic recreations of sets like the West Wing and the Oval Office. The acting talent on display is second to none, with Woodmark's president and E.G. Marshall's CIA director both giving outstanding performances. For 1971, it's also highly laudable that the role of the intrepid FBI investigator, who gets to do all the James Bond-type action stuff, went to an African-American actor, Robert Hooks. But most laudable of all is the script. Slowly and it draws the viewer in, adding layer upon layer of gripping mystery and drama into the heady tension-field mix. At over three hours, Vanished does not feel too long at all. With each turn and each new revelation, the sense of what the hell is going on only grows. For those of you who have watched the most famous mid-1970s political thrillers, The Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, All the President's Men, Vanished represents a surprisingly worthy addition to that classic sub-drama one whose story is all the more interesting, given that this project was made before the Watergate scandal even broke. And then, the article takes a detour to take a look at the toop. After all, this is Shatner's Toupee It finishes the review this way. Despite an ending that doesn't quite offer the payoff that previous three hours of drama would seem to demand, how could it, really? Vanished, we believe, is an outstanding and highly entertaining piece of drama, and one that is inexcusably so far... Far more obscure. We couldn't even find a single detailed review online, so it's far more obscure than it deserves to be. And my hat's off, pun intended, to Shatner's Toupe.blogspot.com for recognizing that gap and seeking to fill it. To be honest with you, given the opportunity, I would have gladly done the same myself for Buzz Kulick's perhaps crowning glory. If not this one, then maybe Brian's song, both from 1971. Maybe the best example of a theatrical release that most people would have seen would be a later film that Kulik put out, a Steve McQueen vehicle in a theatrical release, The Hunter, 1980. No, I think that his most enduring work, including other films I've seen, like Bad Ronald, would be Vanished. And it's a shame that particular film has not, well, it didn't air in any way theatrically, right? Brian Song, good enough that after its success on television and in rerun on television, it was actually shown in movie theaters. A rare example of a made for TV movie getting a theatrical run, albeit short. But Vanished, you know, can't make that claim. It seems to have been lost in the ether of time, perhaps with the real drama of Watergate and future scandals taking its place. Nevertheless, Kulik deserves credit for putting such a quality work on screen that reviewers have been tempted To line it up and compare it equally with shows like All the President's Men and Three Days of the Condor, when those films were theatrically released, shot on film, with a comparable budget, the only thing I can say that would line up resources-wise to make Vanished on equal footing with those shows was the casting, including William Shatner. Find inappropriate conversations at inappropriateconversations.org. Anyone who has downloaded the shows via iTunes or some other podcatcher may have only been exposed to maybe the last 20 or 25 episodes at any given time, but I've been very willful and intentional about not pulling down any previous episode of either inappropriate conversations or walk the earth. The bottom line is whether the episode was good, bad, or indifferent, whether the sound quality was embarrassing or even challenging, Uh, I've left everything up there, warts and all. There also are comments enabled for shows that have been previously posted. And I do, uh, on the rare occasions I get some, interact that way. As long as the comments aren't purely spam. I also can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And that's one way of interacting directly with the show. The other ways are via Twitter. uh, At ic underscore greg is uh, my contact on Twitter for both podcasts. For uh, both Walk the Earth and and Inappropriate Conversations. Each one has its own Facebook page, and I do share new programs there, but also things that I'm looking at, reading, and considering for future shows. And finally, Stitcher is another way of listening to podcasts on the go, including Inappropriate Conversations. Both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations share the same RSS feed. And SoundCloud, where I have gone back to share clips, Just momentary audio segments, some of them as short as a minute or two, some of them as long as an hour or so, uh, depending on the show. But a way of people coming in and sampling a piece of one of those older Inappropriate Conversations shows before deciding to hunt it down by uh, by month or by different drummer category on the website at InappropriateConversations.org. I go into an an introduction of this length at this point in time, because in some ways this might be the most important Inappropriate Conversations podcast I've ever recorded. That doesn't mean I'm going to look back on it months or years from now and say that it was one of the best, or even necessarily good. We'll see. But it is absolutely and critically important. I know that it's so typical during a presidential election season to be overwhelmed with hyperbole. Every uh, candidate put forth that you believe in and support is the greatest ever, I frankly have never had this experience, but I see it a lot from other people. Uh, Every opposition candidate is the worst of all time, and if not uh, un-American, perhaps even the Antichrist incarnate. Uh, I do know what that feels like to experience that feeling. In fact, I know what it feels like to experience that feeling about all major political party candidates at the same time. Uh, I take the lesser of two evils, in some ways, to an even more dangerous extreme. But anyone who's listened to previous political podcasts here on Inappropriate Conversations, particularly ones that might have come around four years ago, say October-November of the year 2012, knows that I don't take a pass. I don't hold my nose and vote for, quote-unquote, my party, and that my allegiance to any political party is highly suspect at best. Even going back to the first year of Inappropriate Conversations on an episode I called Elections Are Not Horse Races, I walked through the fact that I've cast votes for the Transcendental Meditation Party before and would have done so again, presented the exact same choices in the exact same way. So no, what I'm about to say does not come from any politically partisan point of view. And I want to present the problem, identify it as the crisis that it is, then perhaps put in a promo or something to break the ice a little bit, and then I'm going to do something that I almost never do. I'm going to do something that I've heard uh, online friends and acquaintances describe as a bleed, a blog reading. I'm going to go to a blog previously posted on inappropriateconversations.org. Those can be found by going to uh, the Inappropriate Conversations website, looking over to the right navigation bar, and under Categories. Most of the categories that are there are categories that help people find past different drummers. If you wanted a different drummer who was an author, there's a book section, a a director. There's a film direction section. There's a long list of uh, people who would fall into the category of music or theology. But there's a few categories there that aren't about the different drummer. The one for Walk the Earth seems obvious, a quick way of diving into just Walk the Earth podcasts and weeding out all the inappropriate conversations episodes. One called Intro, again, probably kind of obvious. The very first two episodes of Inappropriate Conversation, I categorized as intro because I didn't get to my first different drummer named and claimed until the third one of these Inappropriate Conversation shows, going all the way back to 2010. The one I want to highlight, though, is called Articles, and anytime I create a blog entry, I categorize it as articles so that someone can very quickly go just to that right navigation bar and find the previous blogs. It's silly to say this now, but I guess what I mean by it is that if you wanted to actually read along at the end of this podcast, I'm going to share a blog from July this year called First Monday in October. It's a blog where I'm going to present what I consider to be a viable solution to this problem. But first, let me deal with the problem. At no point in my life that I can recall have we faced a constitutional crisis that is this directly constitutional We've heard this terminology before, right? Watergate. What was that? That was the president of the United States and people who were directly within what we might describe as his command and control. Breaking in during a political cycle, an election year, to the opposition political party's offices to try to illegally steal intellectual property of that that party in an effort to capture campaign secrets in order to throw or otherwise influence a political election. Worse, this was the sitting United States president, up for re-election, where there wasn't a single poll showing that his opponent had a snowball's chance in hell of winning. In other words, this kind of egregious act of espionage, intended to undermine the honesty and and, uh, fidelity of our political election process, was being done by someone with a megalomaniacal tendency so high that he was actually trying to ensure that he could throw an election that there was almost no chance he could conceivably lose. And the robbery itself was the underlying crime. The cover-up, of course, had a lot to do with it. But let's not forget that when you boil down some of the other political controversies we've had over these years, they've been about the U.S. government doing things to illegally influence the government's and uh, violate the laws and constitutions of other countries, places like Nicaragua, for example, where they've involved the president's personal life in one way or another, whether that be his sex life or something else. This was a rare case, though, of somebody actually trying to throw a U.S. presidential election by engaging in activities that would clearly be, um, well, it'd, it'd be an egregious violation of all intellectual property laws today, and using a racketeering approach to get it done. So... That Watergate, typically described as the as 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 a constitutional crisis, and I'm not a hundred percent sure I buy that argument. Don't get me wrong, the impeachment proceedings were fully justified. The resignation of Nixon before the end of his term was an appropriate and uh, rare moment of statesmanship for Nixon in the midst of all this. He was wrong. He acknowledged he was wrong, and he was wrong in a way that cut to the very core of the freedoms of this country. Our our free election system. And it did, on some ways, represent a mentality of monarchy or kingship, of a right to rule, and uh, the use of political power in extremely egregious ways to defend a right to rule, and showing almost no faith in the electorate in this country, that if you just follow the Constitution that we've been given, and follow the voters as they participate in this democratic republic, that things will shake out okay. That as a country, our model and design is as good as we tell the world we think it is. But I'm here to tell you that that crisis, whether it be constitutional or simply an egregious abuse of, of administrative and executive power, is nothing compared to what we're dealing with now. It's not like you can go to the U.S. Constitution or even any of the amendments and point to exactly where Nixon was directly subverting the U.S. Constitution as written and approved all those hundreds of years ago. It wasn't as if some effort was being made to say that while our country was formed on principles that we laud about how they've been handed down to us by founding fathers and how great all that is, we just don't trust it. The American people in the minds of some folks simply cannot be trusted. The first time I can remember seeing this, as a voter, old enough to vote, because I wasn't a voter in the 70s, was the Clinton impeachment scandal. In many ways, the effort to impeach Clinton in the time that that was done and in the manner that it was done had a lot to do with the fact that a lot of politically conservative people, most of them Republicans, felt like the American people just couldn't be trusted. How could they have elected this guy once? How could they have reelected him twice? Something has to be done about it. Let's get him at by any means necessary. And anybody who's curious about kind of the rest of the story from my perspective on that can go all the way back to Inappropriate Conversations 40, which I called Other High Crimes. That looked, in particular, years later, of course, at the Clinton uh, impeachment scandal and kind of how all that meant. And it's kind of interesting to me that I've name-dropped Episodes 40 and 42 more than once here in the last couple of recordings for Inappropriate Conversations. There must have been something kind of really nice going on for me that particular winter, December of 2010, January of 2011. But this year, we're dealing with something that's completely different. We're looking at a situation where key political leaders uh, in one political party in particular have decided that they would prefer to wipe their tails with the U.S. Constitution rather than follow it to the letter or even pretend to follow it to the letter. We're looking at something that is so big that from my understanding of modern American history, there's nothing that even comes close to this, short of perhaps the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration and suggestions he made and maneuverings he initially did to try to, quote unquote, stack the Supreme Court. Roosevelt was concerned that he wasn't going to be able to get a lot of his initiative through and that even if Congress passed what he wanted and he didn't get uh, enough of a critical mass of direct resistance from the states, that the courts might step in and overrule some of his ideas as unconstitutional. And he knew, or at least he felt he knew, that he didn't have the votes in the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the ideas, one of many, I suppose, to deal with that was to take the number of justices from nine up to something like 13, so that if he appointed four more himself and all four of them understood his agenda and wanted to support it, that he could influence the Supreme Court that way. Now, this was rife with all sorts of problems, one of which would be the obvious conflict of interest, but conflict of interest is inherent in the, in the approach we use in this nation of appointing Supreme Court justices. There's just no way around it. The process of vetting, once it gets to the point of a litmus test, will always feel a bit like a conflict of interest. The bigger problem, though, was constitutional questions that it raised, but you know what? The Constitution isn't necessarily obsessed with specifying exactly how many justices there will be. There is leeway in terms of that. Um, not to the same degree that the Constitution is obsessed with the rights and responsibilities of the U.S. President in appointing judges and the rights and responsibilities of the U.S. Senate in making that happen. And what does it mean if one of the two parties simply refuses to do their constitutional job? Now, this is in part a constitutional crisis, because I'm about to share the relevant sections of the U.S. Constitution, and clearly what's going on here is a direct disregard, if not undermining, of the document itself as written and intended by any intelligent interpretation of these words. It's also a constitutional crisis in that it seeks to undermine the very concepts that our original founders had about notions of checks and balances that there's a certain amount of faith you have to have to be a patriotic American citizen. And that patriotic notion doesn't come from a flag pin on your lapel or uh, putting a flagpole in your front yard and flying the flag following all the rules associated with flag flying. It's not about uh, dubbing things like Christian Nation or dropping names of founding fathers whenever you express an idea. You don't get to use Abraham Lincoln as a cover for any Inherent underlying racism in your policies or your worldview. No checks and balances in part was built around the idea that we know we are going to have a constant exchange of power. Presidents will serve four years. I'm not exactly sure that the founders had in their mind a notion that there would be um, a perpetual reelection. George Washington very intentionally stepped down after two terms because he realized that if he was elected perpetually, At every available moment for the rest of his life and ended up serving 12, 16, 20 years, he was a de facto emperor. He was the very thing that the Revolutionary War was, in part, trying to overthrow. And when FDR got to the point of being re-elected four times, we ended up with a constitutional amendment that saw the danger of that for the first time live and in person, recognizing that part of FDR's tenure was related to the crises that we were dealing with. Coming in right after the stock market crash, dealing with the Great Depression, aftermath of the Dust Bowl, World War II. It kind of made sense that Americans would seek the uh, relative stability of re-electing the same person over and over again. But it was a very, it was an opposition idea to what George Washington modeled for us. And the Constitution itself is very clear about how often we should be re-electing or rolling through by changing House of Representatives. There was an expectation that if every other year you're going to vote for every single member of the House of Representatives, that there's going to be a massive amount of turnover. And I feel pretty safe saying that our founding fathers would be extremely disappointed in how little turnover there is relative to what their original vision might be. The servant leader concept of stepping up to play a role in government for a short period of time and then stepping back into your role within your own local community, whether that be your business or your farm or whatever, has certainly been subverted by the polluting influence of of, uh, lobbyists, of money, of Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United, this this notion going all the way back to 1977 that corporations in some role have some sort of personhood. And now we uh, distance between the mid-70s and today, you look and you say, well, Most of these are multinational corporations. How could they possibly be given the power to influence American elections when they truly, as an entity, even if you viewed them as quote-unquote persons, aren't American, aren't purely American? There's more birther questions that could be raised about the average U.S. corporation than you could ever raise about any presidential candidate in my lifetime. So the U.S. Senate's established In the U.S. Constitution with very specific guidelines to say, you know, there's going to be two from every state, but we're going to designate right up front that after two years, some of the original senators from the very first convened U.S. Senate are going to have their term end after just two. And some will have their term end after just four years. And then the rest will be six years because then every time there's an election cycle and all the senators by then will be serving six-year terms, you'll have a constant rollover, where a third of the U.S. Senate will every other year be rolling over. There was an assumption that power would change hands. And yet here we are with a set of Republicans in the United States Senate deciding that they have no faith whatsoever in a directly constitutional concept like the rollover and exchange of power or the checks and balances during tenure— to allow themselves to follow the written guidelines of the Constitution itself. So here's the deal. I'm talking about the death of Antonin Scalia, the appointment of Merrick Garland by the president, and the refusal of the U.S. Senate to even hold a single hearing, or frankly probably read a single briefing related to this nominee. And if anyone questions, well, am I right in elevating this to the state of crisis? Am I exaggerating its importance? Am I speaking too boldly? Let me tell you that although there have been eight person courts and perhaps even less with a longer tenure of vacancy in the history of our country, you've got to go back to the U.S. Civil War to find anything quite like this. And the reason for the patience of Lincoln and others during the Civil War was that it was an expectation that that war was going to end and that the southern Representatives of the U.S. Supreme Court who had left Washington, D.C. might come back to their existing roles. Therefore, it might be presumptive to replace them. Here, I believe that if a couple of the U.S. Supreme Court justices viewed as liberal were to step down... In a similar way, uh, take a leave of absence medically with an expectation that they would return in four or five months, There would probably be clamoring from these same U.S. senators to force a preemptive replacement of that justice in hopes that if a Republican wins the presidency, then you could shove a Supreme Court justice out of the way in a manner that doesn't look anything like how we've handled this historically. Because this is all about stacking the U.S. Supreme Court. Listen, I understand the mentality. I have spent more years of my life as a registered Republican than as a registered Democrat. I'm a political moderate, meaning I find troubling the extremes on both sides on an everyday basis. So I get it. But here's the problem. You don't get to say that the will of the, of the American people tells you, because of a midterm election or a poll or anything else, that the sitting United States president does not get to nominate a replacement to the U.S. Supreme Court. That concept is unconstitutional, and arbitrarily enforcing that concept is a violation of that document. It is a constitutional crisis. Garland, right now, as a prospective nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, has spent more time than any prospective nominee in the entire history of our country by a fairly large and growing margin between that line of nomination and hearing, hearing slash consent. It's been half a year and growing. And the other thing I'll get to hopefully at the end here is to say that I'm not even sure I understand what the Senate's game plan is. Because if they're true to their word, what happens in November if the Senate loses seats, even if the GOP maintains a majority in the Senate, if they lose seats in the Senate and the House of Representatives, if Hillary Clinton becomes the next president of the United States, wouldn't you then have to break out the rubber stamp and just agree to whatever judge she puts forward? Wouldn't the will of the American people argument, vacuous though it is, cut both ways? Here's what the Constitution of the United States has to say about it. Article 2, Section 2, Paragraph 2, referring to presidential power. He or she <laughs> shall have the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two thirds of the senators present concur and he shall nominate by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, judges of the Supreme court and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during a recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their session. In other words, there is no limitation in the U.S. Constitution. This is what the Constitution says in its totality about president's and the Senate, and the appointment of U.S. Supreme Court justices. There's no limitation on the President's power here. If anything, you could make a very liberal interpretation of these words to say that the Congress perhaps does have the authority to wash their hands of advice and consent and just tell the President, do whatever the hell you want. Now, I don't read the Constitution that way. I read the Constitution that the Senate actually has a direct, written, mandated duty to provide advice and consent. But there is nothing here that says that that advice and consent has anything whatsoever to do with the results of any recent election. Short of this, the man elected president is going to appoint the replacement for the U.S. Supreme Court at the time that that vacancy occurs, regardless of whether the person leaving office was appointed by a Republican or a Democrat, or some other political party, regardless of whether that sitting president is a Republican, or a Democrat, or a representative of any other political party. It doesn't matter. You're the president of the United States, and there is plenty of time to provide advice and consent for a replacement, so you don't end up with an eight-person judge for an inordinate amount of time. Because I tell you what, when you leave here... And you go to the United States Bill of Rights. It's not that I want to say that there is nothing in the constitutional amendments or elsewhere in the, the actual document that was ratified originally. The only other thing you're going to see that I think is relevant to this is the Sixth Amendment. Are we having a constitutional crisis, yes or no? Well, let me ask this question. Are we sitting with an almost heretofore untold number of vacant federal judiciary appointments That have not been filled, not because the President of the United States has failed to put together candidates, and by all accounts, credible candidates for office. At least credible in terms of their education, their degree, their accomplishments. They may not be credible in the eyes of some politically conservative people from the perspective of their political party or any ideology that might be inferred by their writings or their speeches. But qualified in the sense that they can read and write in the English language, they've got a degree in law, they've practiced law, and in many cases they've actually been judges at other levels of our judiciary. No, we are actually sitting on, perhaps, I'm not 100% sure this is a record, but a near record-setting level of open open vacancies for judicial positions that have not been filled because of the same foot-dragging and hand-wringing that is going on now at the highest level regarding the U.S. Supreme Court. There's two things here that I'll use in citing the Sixth Amendment as being violated by all of these current people sitting in positions of power within the U.S. Senate. One of them is that we have seen at least one example in the most recent Supreme Court term with a judge's sitting because although Obama appointed, nominated a replacement for Scalia, in plenty of time for that replacement to have had a meaningful role to play In the court this year, certainly plenty of time for that judge to be uh, vetted, rejected, a new one presented, vetted and appointed and sitting in place when the next Supreme Court term starts in early October. No, the eight person court actually has, at least on one occasion, decided we're just not going to rule on this one. We're going to sidestep this because this needs to have a full court. This needs to have a majority, meaning a decision that could have been made was not made. A speedy resolution to a judicial question has yet to be answered in at least one case for the reason of only having an eight-person court. But also, when you get to the question of whether or not the Sixth Amendment is being obeyed, all of these judicial vacancies are creating problems as well. And you may be able to cite examples on both sides of the political spectrum of judges who have failed to do their job so spectacularly that they ought to be removed from office. I'm referring, of course, in my mind, to a judge in California who, in the case of a pretty well locked down unanimous verdict in a rape case, decided to give the person a six-month sentence commuted later to three months based on time served and quote-unquote good behavior because the judge didn't want to ruin a young man's life. You know, we'd, we'd like to be able to deal with judges of this sort, but frankly, removing a judge for failing to do his job is a difficult thing when judicial appointments are gummed up In a political game. A political game that is elevated to the point of becoming a constitutional crisis for us. The Sixth Amendment within the Bill of Rights, amendments to the U.S. Constitution, says this. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed Which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have assistance of counsel for his defense? The Sixth Amendment, in other words, talks about speedy, public, fair, impartial trials, and it is very hard to guarantee... That we're living up to the standard of speedy, fair trials when we have so many vacancies, and when the source of those vacancies is political gamesmanship being played within the U.S. Senate and elsewhere in our severely broken two-party political system. Listen, let me be as deferential as I possibly can to the point of view... Of those who have said, including some within my family, who boldly said, we're not going to let that Obama replace Scalia because Scalia was a conservative and Obama is a liberal and it's important for conservative presidents to replace conservative judges and maybe it's okay for liberal presidents to replace liberal judges although this is really an opportunity for us to delay and stall and allow one more Supreme Court vacancy to be sitting there so that if in the middle of November we can realize we've got a Republican president for the first time in eight years then we can you know grease up the wheels of this justice train and perhaps obey the Constitution for the first time and actually do go through an advise and consent process and fill these open judicial vacancies with the kind of people People we want in those spots. In other words, the checks and balances includes both the president being able to say, no, I'm going to provide a check on you know legislative power by making the appointment myself on my own preference, knowing that the Senate has some say in this matter. The Senate can look at a prospective nominee and vote that person down for almost any reason that they want. Here's the thing they can't do, though. They can't just decide to wad up the U.S. Constitution toss it in the trash can, and refuse to even consider a nominee? And why would they do that? Why on earth would they do that if this is not a constitutional crisis? And the idea of advice and consent can be interpreted so freely as to say, you don't really have to have a great reason for rejecting a president's nominee. You just need to go through the process of doing it. Then why on earth would somebody not follow the Constitution? I've got a theory there. And then I want to flip it on its head and take it to its... Logical extreme. My theory is that Obama has frankly been guilty of not nominating the world's most liberal judges. You tend to see a pattern, at least from Obama, of putting in people who are arguably palatable. The demagoguery, the extremes, have tended to come uh, maybe from the Bush administration before, where we've gotten guys like Alito put in, or the previous Bush administration with Thomas. Those people are far more extreme. You can't hand uh, the current attitude and mindset of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Obama. She wasn't his appointee. But maybe, just maybe, the idea here happening within the United States Senate is not that we're afraid that he's going to hand us a liberal who's so off the rails we're going to have to reject him and we're going to get gummed up in all this unnecessary meetings and briefings and work to have to reject candidate after candidate after candidate, maybe instead what it is, is Obama's likely to hand us somebody that we can't in good conscience say no to, and therefore our opportunity to unconstitutionally tilt the balance of power by ignoring the checks and balances on what the role of the president is and what the role of the Senate is, and holding a vacancy open until such time as there might be a Republican sitting in the White House, that um, maybe that's the answer here, that if, if Obama would just give us somebody who was the most liberal and least educated in the law kind of nominee in our history, then it would be easy to say no to that. On paper, anyway, Merrick Garland is not that man. He seems like somebody you would almost have to, in conscience, say yes to. If you took the U.S. Constitution seriously about your role as a U.S. senator in the process of providing advice and consent, but let me be deferential. The logic here is that, well, in the midterm elections, as almost always happens in midterm elections, for especially for a lame duck president, the uh, other party took more seats. That There's more Republicans in the U.S. Senate now than there were four years ago. Therefore, the American people have spoken, and the U.S. Constitution be damned. We don't have to provide advice and consent for any of the judicial nominees for Barack Obama, because even if it's more than a year, even if it's arguably slightly less than a year, but even if it was almost two full years, those were election results two years ago mean that the American people have changed their mind about Barack Obama and wish they hadn't put him in the White House. And now uh, we just get to sit on open vacancies, ignore the constitutional right to a fair trial and a speedy trial, and wait until maybe we get lucky and our person is put into the White House. Yeah, that's not in the Constitution. And that is, of course, the definition of a constitutional crisis. If we have a body sitting in political power in this country today who is not doing what the Constitution says, is actually doing exactly the opposite of what the Constitutional says for strictly manipulative political reasons, not unlike the manipulative political reasons that led Nixon to decide to steal the intellectual property of the Democratic Party and kick off the Watergate scandal to begin with. It's it's a similar lack of of ethics and discipline but let's say that there is some validity to the logic let's say that okay in the midterm election republicans picked up seats therefore the sitting president is only allowed to appoint a political replacement if a group of u.s senators think that the person who retired and or died had the same political philosophy as the president but if the person who retired and or died had a radically different political philosophy than the president then we just have to wait until the next election and get a new president and sort it out there Okay, well, what happens if Hillary Clinton wins in November, but the U.S. Senate composition either remains the same or let's make this even more entertaining and say that for whatever reason, the Republicans pick up one more seat. Now you've got an election cycle where the American people have spoken and they like the Republicans in the Senate or they've been manipulated by PAC money and other sort of campaign problems and lobbyists and whatever it is. The Senate has gained a bigger Republican stronghold, but the American people have nominated a president who's a Democrat. And even though the U.S. Constitution is extremely clear on this issue, that the president, the sitting president, regardless of political affiliation, is going to name the next U.S. Supreme Court judge, why don't we just wait, I don't know, at least two more years to the next midterm election and see if the Democrats can take some seats back? And What if we sit with only eight judges on the court, or maybe only seven or only six, as judges begin to drop like flies? But heaven forbid, if we're not going to let Obama name a Supreme Court judge, Constitution be damned. We're sure not going to let Clinton name a Supreme Court judge, Constitution be damned. Even if we stick to our guns about, well, we're going to wait for the next president. Because they don't seem to be reacting to the previous presidential election. This seems to be based just on the number of senators in the recent senatorial election where of course the american people only have the chance to vote for a third of them at a time anyway i mean maybe we should just ignore that rule it's every bit as constitutional as the notion that the sitting president's going to replace supreme court judge and the senate's role is only to provide advice and consent not some sort of wartime blockade again the last time you have you see a situation quite as crazy as this it was the u.s civil war has the gop representation of the united states senate declared war on the United States? Have they not become some sort of treasonous set of enemy combatants? Could I make an argument that if the Senate picks up one seat to the Republicans' good, that we have to wait two more years with no Supreme Court vacancies being filled, or four more years until the next time there's a presidential nominee? The logic that says, doesn't matter what Obama does, we're not going to let him appoint another judge, well, how is that any different from that logic over the course of the next eight years? the thought that the results of the Senate midterm elections is all that matters is flatly ridiculous and directly unconstitutional. As a matter of fact, the notion that the results of a midterm election provide some sort of current litmus test or thermometer reading on the American public's sense of satisfaction with the results of an election in 2012 is flatly ridiculous. Look at poll data telling you where the presidential you know ratings are in terms of people who are satisfied with his job i hear as many people say they would rather vote for obama again in an unconstitutional third term as i hear anybody saying that they're enthusiastic about voting for donald trump or hillary clinton or anyone else here in 2016 and yet in the eyes of many in the republican party this man is for whatever reason ill-equipped or not allowed To fulfill a direct constitutional mandate to replace a Supreme Court justice to fill a vacancy in order to guarantee impartial and speedy and fair trials in this country. If this is not a constitutional crisis, what is? And if this this is not the biggest constitutional crisis in the last 50 plus years, a.k.a. my lifetime, then that constitutional crisis has been veiled in so much secrecy that we're only going to learn about it probably after I'm dead. I can't name anything else that rises to this level. And yet, I feel like I'm screaming from the mountaintop, and I don't have a heck of a lot of listeners. It's just so easy to ignore the nonsense, to say, well, political games will be political games, and to recognize that throughout our history, including the period of our founding fathers, There were always, you know, backstage dealings and shenanigans and hijinks and tomfoolery. But this is tomfoolery that directly subverts the document that all of these people took an oath to defend, and many of them, self-righteously, I would guess, took that oath to defend with the suffix, so help me God. That means, as an American Christian, which is pretty much the gist of the politics and theology mix here on inappropriate conversations, I'm offended on more than one level. I'm primarily offended as a United States citizen, because this is a direct violation of everything that our country was founded upon, everything that those original patriots bled and died for, everything that our states wrangled and negotiated and eventually ratified. But it's also taking the Lord's name in vain, and it's shameful. So what on earth are we going to do about it dan carlin common sense i'm sorry folks i know it's a little bit utopian but you know you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now when could they have one i mean the kind of people we have in dc now representing us from both parties would fight during world war ii fiercely independent it's common sense I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. The last couple of weeks on Inappropriate Conversations, I've, I've done a fair amount of blog reading, and that's not normally how I handle it, but it just made sense to share a really great article about Uh, TV debuts a couple of weeks ago and this week I found a fantastic review of a classic and in my opinion favorite made-for-TV movie and the words were too good not to share. This time though I'm going to share myself in an article that's available on inappropriateconversations.org called First Monday in October. I am a radical moderate. I have voted for non-republicrats of several political parties, as many times in my life as I have voted for Democrats and Republicans combined. The last two times I voted for anyone from the duopoly, though, those votes went to Republicans. The first two times I ever voted, I sided with Democrats. My track record, though, is shunning both. This year, it is very tempting to shun both again. I voted for Jill Stein in 2012... And I would vote the same way again if given another chance in 2012. I'm not inclined to vote for her this year, though. And this is not the place to post my reasons. Libertarian leading candidates do not interest me. And I see friends with that mindset veering toward Gary Johnson. Too often, libertarianism becomes all about the ism, as if the political philosophy matters more than anything else. Ron Paul, for example, personified this in the last election cycle by suggesting that people who didn't buy their own health insurance should be left to die. No coverage, no treatment. So I am either stuck with majority party options, or I need to dig deeper and find a candidate who, unlike Stein and Johnson, truly qualifies as fringe. Or do I? The least attractive presidential candidate I can recall in my lifetime is Donald Trump. I say this as a registered Republican. He is not the only problem with the GOP today, though. Probably the biggest issue is Republican leaders in the U.S. Senate refusing to give Judge Merrick Garland a hearing or vote to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court from Antonin Scalia's death in February. February. When the Supreme Court of the U.S. term begins in early October, almost eight months will have passed. The Constitution requires the Senate to provide advice and consent on judicial nominees. There has been no advice No consideration, no hearings, and certainly no consent. Our Constitution is being violated by people who have sworn to uphold it. I'm not naive. I understand the point of this anti-constitutional obstruction. Political conservatives revered Scalia, and don't want a more moderate judge sitting in that spot. Facile arguments have been made about midterm election results and the will of the people, requiring that the seat be left vacant until a new president is inaugurated. None of this is constitutional. Throughout our history, sitting presidents have filled judicial vacancies regardless of changes in majorities in either part of Congress. Remember, the Constitution has nothing to say about political parties holding majorities. What it speaks of instead are concepts like advice and consent, the president's power and responsibility to appoint judges, and the importance of fair and speedy trials. All of these things are in jeopardy, and we are likely facing a genuine constitutional crisis. What does this have to do with my vote in 2016? I'm putting a decision deadline on the first Monday in October. As a Republican who has frankly long ago written off Trump as potentially presidential, I'm hesitant to vote for Hillary Clinton. I didn't vote for her husband at either opportunity, so why would I vote for her? Of course, as a moderate, my political views are far too complex for any either or propositions like conservative versus liberal or Republican versus Democrat. And, as I've noted, the choices this year are not particularly compelling examples. That said, the only way Trump can get any serious consideration from me is the Senate doing their job and filling the Supreme Court of the United States vacancy before the beginning of term. Our Constitution says that in this year, A Democrat sitting in the White House will appoint the next Supreme Court Justice with the consent of the Senate. Do it. Do it now. Come back from recess in an emergency session if necessary. There is an else to this formula. If Obama is not going to be the sitting Democrat who fills this vacancy by the end of September, since it hasn't happened in the two or three months it normally takes... That I will do everything in my power to correct this constitutional abomination by striving to put another Democrat into the White House to right this wrong. That doesn't just mean voting for Hillary Clinton. It means a straight ticket of Democrats across every level of government, both the Senate and the House openings on my ballot at the national level, but also across every state, county, city, and other jurisdiction. People within my party who don't respect the Constitution enough to rise up and fix this cannot earn my vote for their current or sought seats either. Who knows? In the five crucial weeks between the first Monday in October and the second Tuesday in November, I might actually make financial donations, for probably the first time in my life since college, to Democrat candidates within those elections. This isn't as extreme as it may sound to some. I am a radical moderate. And I'm approaching from that perspective. All I'm asking is for Republicans in the United States Senate to perform their constitutionally mandated duty in a timely manner that respects the importance and functions of the judiciary. If they cannot do that by the first Monday in October, then none of them deserve my consideration or their jobs. Write this wrong. Write this wrong, though, and I will wipe the slate clean and spend the next month in October reevaluating candidates from every office on my ballot from a fresh perspective. That is my job as a citizen. Unlike far too many of my fellow Republicans, I am doing my job. Do yours, or let someone else do it. Simple as that. <laughs> Show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at Pride48.com/slash shows.